All right, well, boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin in there. You have your own translation and a place to ask questions. Everyone else, you can pull out your smartphones and open up your apps there, or pull out your Bibles, or look in your bulletin itself. We're going to be continuing through Luke chapter 8. We'll be in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 uh, through 56. And as you're turning there, before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. <clears throat> oh, Father God, we do come before You, anxious to hear from Your Word. We do come, Lord, as we have just sung, that You would teach us full obedience holy reverence, true humility. Speak and renew our minds, Lord. Help us to grasp your plans for us. Change us by your truth. Oh, Lord, all these things we have just sung, we mean them. We ask that you would do those things by your Holy Spirit, working in your word through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, our church, as you know, is in a time of transition, and times of transition can be uncomfortable. And so, during that discomfort, it can also be a, t- a chance for clarity and to kind of really recognize what's important and what's not. And so, I thought that what I would do for my last four sermons here at Trinity was kind of put us in the section of Luke's gospel that's not just one of my favorites, Luke chapter 8, but it's also a chapter where Jesus purposely puts people into hard situations. He puts them in uncomfortable situations so that they will clearly see who Jesus is. So today in verses 40 through 56 here in Luke chapter 8, we're going to see a couple of miracles that are very familiar if you've been around church for a while. Um, These are stories that are told in Sunday school classes. These are a couple of the popular ones especially. And they're usually told as two events. But as we're going to see as we go through this text together, is that these are actually intertwined. And so if you would, let's look together. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. This is God's Word. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand... 
he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And this is God's word. So this event takes place at the uh, synagogue there in the town of Capernaum. A lot in Luke's gospel has happened here. Uh, In chapter 4, Jesus heals a man with a demon um, in this synagogue. He heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a fever at this synagogue. In chapter 7, the centurion who built this synagogue had a servant healed by Jesus. And Jairus, he was a witness to most of these things. He would have heard of most of these things. Jairus, it says, he's a, he's a, um, a religious leader. He's a ruler of the synagogue. Think an elder plus like a city council person put together into one position. That's what it means to be a ruler of the synagogue. So this was a, a big man in town. He was an important man. He would have known about this man, about, about these events. And so this person who has eminence in the community, this civic and religious leader, what does he do? How does this text open up? This important religious leader, he falls down at Jesus' feet. He's in abject desperation, humbling himself. Nobody had ever seen this dignified leader do this begging an unofficial prophet. He's an official leader. Here's, he's, he's begging an unofficial guy to come and heal his little girl. Now remember, for the most part, these religious leaders, after about an initial kind of what's going on here, they all of a sudden didn't like Jesus very much. I mean, they had the traditions, they had the building, they had the religious practices. We can assume that this man had done everything his system said to do. Everything that he knew what to do. He had the book of church order out. He had the Westminster Confession out. And he was doing whatever it it took to take care of his little girl. And it wasn't working. You see, when this man really needed it, when his life was falling apart, when he had a serious issue, this man's religion had nothing to offer him. And so he steps out of that and goes to the unofficial guy socially casts off his position as a leader and falls down before the prophet. He flees to Jesus when he realizes that what he had always placed his hope in, what had always worked for him, wasn't working now. You know, I became a Christian as a teenager, but I really didn't grasp the gospel Which is a good thing. You don't have to actually take a test to become a Christian. God comes to you as Jesus came to Lazarus and he says, live. And so you do and then you confess faith in Christ even if you don't understand everything. And that's what happened to me. I didn't understand everything. I was born again. But I just, I didn't quite get the gospel. And so as I started college, the Lord started just pressing into me how substantial my sin, my guilt my selfishness was. In fact, my college roommate was actually a, a very young childhood friend with Nikki. They knew each other from like four years old. And I remember one time I came home from a bookstore with my, with my roommate and he, he called up Nikki. He goes, Nikki, Sean bought another book on sin. What is wrong with him? I just, I just, I kept, just, the Lord just kept pressing into me the reality of my sin. 
Because the religion that I had been given as a teenager, the religion that I had confessed faith in, that little Jesus that they gave me wasn't big enough to handle my sin. The weak Jesus begging me to believe in him. The message of try harder to be godly and good, that religion couldn't handle the weight of my guilt. And so I fled to the real Jesus when he was offered to me in the gospel and I finally got it. That's the Jesus Christ who, he didn't just say, oh, God's law is not important, but he came and he lived that perfect obedience that God required of Sean. He lived the life that Sean should have lived before God. And then because of my sin, Sean deserved to die before a holy God. And Jesus Christ died that death. And then to prove that that was real, he was raised from the grave, conquering death. That Jesus when I placed my faith and trust in him, that Jesus took away the weight of my guilt. That Jesus set me free from the power of sin. Not the presence of sin, still got that, but the power of sin was broken and I was free and it was amazing and that is not what Jairus is doing in this moment at all. He's not coming to Jesus as Lord. He's coming to Jesus as a healer, as a popular prophet, as a miracle worker. This Jesus can help solve this problem perhaps. But he has no intention of becoming a follower. You know, this often happens to us if we've been around church for a while. If we've been, you know, Christianized might be a good word. When, when what we've built our life on falls apart, when everything we've put our hope and our trust in, when it fails us, we resort to prayer. We start coming back to church if we've drifted away. We may even call out to Jesus, help us. But it sometimes can be not as Lord but Jesus the helper, Jesus the magician, Jesus the genie and coming to church rubs the lamp somehow. And yet, even in spite of that reality, how beautiful is this? Jesus is still sympathetic and inviting to this man. See, even coming to Jesus out of a need for help, not as a need of, oh, you're the Lord who can forgive me of my sins, but no, this is, this is broken in my life, can you fix it? Even coming to Jesus for that is enough for God to work with. And in this case, he does. Jesus goes with Jairus. But there's a problem. The crowd from verse 40 is back. He, you know, he, he left this crowd to go across the, the, the lake to see the other guy, and now he's coming back, and this crowd is still so glad to see him. They throng about him. It's interesting because, you know, last week we saw after he healed the man full of demons, those people freaked out and said, you need to leave. But here, these people are like, Jesus is back, let's go. That doesn't happen in Capernaum. They want Jesus. And so, so many people are pressing around him. The Greek literally says they're choking and suffocating him. It's hard to move fast. And Jairus' urgency at this moment, you know, as a father, you know that this has to become just total frustration. You know, he, st- he gets stuck in traffic. See, there's this woman, and in this small town, and him as a religious leader, he, he would have known her. She's, let's call her the bleeder. She has this illness, and it has ruined her life. Don't overlook that. We don't get this. Let's remember where she lives, the religious practices of the day, the traditions of the synagogue. She is to be avoided. The traditional religion isolated this woman from the community and from God. She was too dirty for grace. She can't go into the synagogue. She's unclean because she's bleeding. 
She can't be touched by anyone because they'll become unclean. She can't go into anyone's home because their home will become unclean. They can't come into her home or they'll become unclean. She is ceremonially unclean. Now, there's a way to fix that, but she has to stop bleeding first. And everybody else who she comes in contact with, they have to go through the system to get clean again. It's just too much of a hassle. So they just basically had a religious segregation system and just said, go over there. And for over a decade, she had to live like that. It was so intense that even her being in this crowd with them jostling around would make everybody jumping up and jostling around against her unclean. She was, her responsibility was to stay away. She could legally, under their system, be lynched in this moment for making all of them unclean because it was her job to stay over there. But her need, her desperation was so great, she didn't care. The religious leader humbled himself and came to Jesus. This woman's already humiliated. She risks her life to get to Jesus. You know, we all have needs we can't meet. We all have problems we can't fix. And as Christians, we def- we, you know this, we fight with habitual sins, don't we? All of us have broken relationships, areas of personal weakness. And it leaves us feeling empty. It leaves us feeling discouraged. What do we do? See, this woman, at the end of her rope, she risked it all just for a touch of the Savior. Oh, and at the end of your rope, you can reach out to Jesus too. This woman, I love how the text says she, she just manages to touch. Can't you see it in your mind? She touches just, just the fringe of his garment. And immediately she is healed. And Jesus stops and asks, whoa, who touched me? And you got to love Peter. I love how Peter is like, Jesus, people are jostling all around, dude. Who hasn't touched you? Come on. You know, there's this person in my house who I hate. Yeah, I said it. I hate this person. Their name is not me. I hate this person. I'm pretty sure it's a little boy. I'm not sure. I can't quite prove that. But not me breaks so many things in my house. Not me messes up so many things and I'm the only one who hasn't seen him. Everybody else in my house who's shorter than me has seen this person because they always tell me he's the one who did it. And I'm like, who, who, when you find him, will you let him know I want to talk to him, please? And that's where Jesus is in this crowd. Like, you touch me? No, I didn't do it. Not, not me. Not me. He's looking, trying to figure out who this person is. I didn't do nothing. I mean, look with me at verse 46, what Jesus says. He says, look, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. What's that about? I mean, honestly, this is one of those things we read so fast. What in the world is that about? Did Jesus feel some sort of loss or emptying of himself? I mean, and the word used here for gone out is used in their culture for giving birth, like the baby has gone out from me. So clearly something significant has left Jesus. See, there's a hint here. I love how Luke does this. There's a hint here that it doesn't matter how big the healing is, whenever Jesus heals a person from the results of sin, it costs him something. It's not just easy for Jesus. There's a, there's a cost there. And it points us to the cross, doesn't it? Where in order to accomplish the ultimate relief, the ultimate healing from death itself, Jesus Christ had to give up everything. 
by dying to pay the price for his people. Well, back to Jairus. You know he's beyond frustrated now, right? I mean, can't you just see him? Jesus, who cares who touched you? My baby girl is dying. Would you come on? But Jesus presses. He won't stop. He wants this woman to be identified. And finally, he sees her and points her out. And Jairus knows her. One of his responsibilities as a ruler of the synagogue would be to make sure she never came in and made the synagogue unclean. He was well aware of her. You can almost just hear him, can't you? Her? Man, she's disgusting. She's a dirty, unclean person. Come back and talk to her later. I know you're into that, okay? But my child's dying. Would you please come with me? Oh, how many times have we devalued someone because taking time to care for them just didn't fit our schedule? Or how many times have we been less than welcoming to someone because we somehow considered them to be dirty, unwelcome, different, making us feel uncomfortable? See, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus stops and he takes time for this woman. Why does Jesus do this? For the exact same reason that we have prayed this morning, we talked about it before our confession, that our hearts were hopefully broken this week over the shootings of these seven people. Because when God's image is violated, God's people should be bothered. When God's image is violated, God's people should be bothered. People made in the image of God deserve dignity and respect. And so Jesus is going to not just heal this woman, he's going to restore her to the community. See, the thronging crowd, who are they looking at now in this moment? All eyes are on her. And what has she just done? She has just publicly confessed, I have been cleaned. Jesus has stopped my bleeding I have been healed. Jesus has now publicly restored her. He has made it public. She's not bleeding anymore. She's not unclean anymore. She can come over. You can have her over. Give her a hug. She doesn't have to be isolated anymore. He has made it public. She can come back. And even more amazing, Jesus looks at her and he calls her daughter. This is the only time in the record of Jesus' ministry he does this. Now, this is not as a man in his early 30s that he calls her daughter. Even in their patriarchal culture, it would have been socially unacceptable for a 30-year-old or early 30s man to call an older woman daughter. That just would not have been done. It would have been, it would have been seen as patronizing even to them. See, this is, you know, earlier in Luke's gospel, there had been a, a moment of glory where Jesus kind of peeled back. It was called the transfiguration, and this incredible bright light came out. The second person of the Trinity exposed himself a little bit, and we have that here. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal son who created this woman, calls her daughter, confirming her dignity. See, Jairus isn't the only father concerned about his little girl in this story. God himself publicly confirms that his precious daughter is no longer unclean, but she is, has dignity and she deserves to be in the community and no longer be isolated. Is that your picture of God? That kind, caring, affirming, loving father? Or is your God an ogre? who requires morality 
uprightness. Who's never really kind or compassionate. He's too busy making sure that we're doing everything right. But at this point, Jairus isn't thinking anything about that. That's not where Jairus' mind is. Put yourself in his shoes. What would you be doing at this point? And can't you see him grabbing Jesus' arm, trying to get him to move through the crowd? And then his worst nightmare occurs. Look with me at verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. See, as Jesus is talking with this woman, as Jesus is drawing attention to this woman and her healing and her restoration, Jairus looks up and he sees his servant coming. He knows by the look in his eye. He can tell. It's too late. Jesus dawdled with this nobody. And now his daughter's dead. Do not let the outcome of this story cause you to miss the impact. This is not a parable. This happened. This man did lose his daughter. She died. And a part of him did in that moment. And he didn't know the ending. But as a fallen human, he would have acted just like we would. We'd have been ticked at Jesus. All he knew was this Jesus clown may have been able to help. I don't know, but he has now wasted my time with this dirty woman, and now my daughter's dead. I missed her final moments on this last-ditch effort, and he didn't even care enough to move along. Who is this guy? I mean, did Jesus value this woman more than the little girl? What's going on here? See, Jairus, the religious leader, came to Jesus for his daughter. He himself had it all together. He was a professional religious person. He was known in the community. He didn't need Jesus. He was good. It wasn't until this catastrophe happened. See, like so many churched people, this man is just as estranged from God as a non-religious person. Only he thinks he's in with God because of his religious activities, because of his behavior, because of his history. See, but Jesus, he's not going to let him stay there. Jesus is after Jairus. He's done this throughout this chapter. Jesus thrusts a situation onto people they do not want, a situation that makes them very uncomfortable in order to get them to where they really need to be. His disciples had to endure a fierce, life-threatening storm to get to the point of seeing Jesus' power over nature. The guy full of demons last week was forced against his will to stay behind. No, you cannot come with Jesus because you have to tell the story of Jesus' power over darkness. And Jairus is forced to see his daughter die because Jesus is going to show him his power over death. You know, there's a, there's a leadership principle out there. It's called purposeful discomfort. And basically what it says is in order to rouse people out of a comfort zone, in order to rouse people out of apathy, you should push the boundaries. You should challenge people's comfort zones on purpose. You should make it your aim to make people uncomfortable. 
And that's exactly what Jesus has done for this whole chapter. I don't know if the people who came up with purposeful discomfort were reading Luke 8, but it's here. Has God ever brought something or someone into your life that just won't let you be comfortable and apathetic? It kind of ticks you off a little. But because of this person or this thing, you have a more substantial faith? He's done that to me, I tell you. Maybe you're still experiencing this thing and it makes you uncomfortable. And that frustrates you, right? It's frustrating. It's difficult. See, this is the flip side of Romans 8.28. We all know Romans 8.28, right? And we have it up here in case you can't remember. Romans 8.28. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Yeah, but sometimes the all things are uncomfortable and frustrating. See, in a culture like ours which values comfort, purposeful discomfort is not appreciated. See, but Jesus is after Jairus. And so he's brought the discomfort, man. He keeps pressing. And now he looks him in the eye. He basically, in the text, interrupts the servant and says, Stay with me, brother. Don't quit. Look with me. Verse 50. Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. See, in what follows here now in the story, between verse 50 and between verse 51, we read over it so quickly, is a huge, dramatic moment an original reader of this text would get. They would stop and like, whoa, that was huge. We miss it. See, and this moment takes place in Jairus' heart. Will he believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Not some popular prophet, not a genie, but God incarnate who has the authority to call a woman way older than him daughter. Will he believe that? See, Jesus has now forced Jairus to see who touched him. Jesus knows this unclean woman has touched Jesus. He knows, according to his religion, it's right there in the BCO, he can show it to you, Jesus is now unclean. He's been touched by the bleeder. Now, in order for this healing to proceed, it has to cost Jairus something. See, before having the popular prophet come into his home, couldn't hurt. It was a desperate grasp. Hey, maybe this Jesus guy my grandma talked about all the time can help. Let's pray. He didn't have to believe in Jesus. He just had to know about Jesus before. But now, will he let this man publicly enter his house? This crowd's going to see. That would make him, his home, his family, his servants, his little girl, all unclean. His daughter's dead. Why create a situation that's going to cause all that work and all that hassle? I mean, there's ways to make everything clean, but it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of effort, some, sometimes takes money. She's dead. What's the point? See, at this point, the popular prophet Jesus has absolutely nothing to offer this man except a problem. Jesus has created an uncomfortable situation. He can no longer just glibly bring Jesus into his house. It's going to have to hurt a little. Will Jairus believe that Jesus is more than a prophet? Or will he fall back into his religious practices? That's what takes place between verse 50 and 51. Does he actually think Jesus has the authority of God? 
And verse 51 is the answer. Of course, Jairus takes him home, not as a prophet, but as someone with some sort of unique connection to God. There's wailing, there's beating of breast because she's really dead. She's not just asleep. I know there's some liberals out there who say she was asleep. They're lying. See, primarily for Jairus' sake, Jesus looks at him and says, it's okay, she's sleeping. Because to Jesus, the eternal Son of God, it's just sleep. It's not the end. I mean, the rest of the New Testament refers to the death of believers as sleep because it's not the end. There's going to be a resurrection. So Jesus grabs her hand and he commands her. He doesn't say some incantation. He doesn't do some jig. He just says, as if he has the authority over death or something, he says, get up! And she dies. Do you believe she did that? It's not a parable. Luke writes this as a historical account. Actually dead. Like Krebs cycle in the cells, gone. Rigor mortis setting in. And all of a sudden, undone in a moment. See, Jairus has been taken now from urgency to frustration to catastrophe to belief. And now he ends in amazement. This comfortable religious leader doesn't have categories for what has just taken place. His daughter's back from the grave. He's looking into the face of a man he cannot explain with his religious practices, his synagogue system. Because the synagogue system said Jesus is unclean. At this moment, he is out of sorts with God. God ignores him. God cannot work with him until he is clean and brought back into good graces with God. And he has to jump through all these hoops to get clean. And until then, God doesn't even really like him that much because God doesn't like unclean people. And yet here Jesus, clearly with the power of God, commands death. One of these is not like the other, right? He has nothing except to believe in who Jesus says he is. See, and that is the point of Luke chapter 8. Having asked, who is this man who can command a storm to stop? Who is this man who can heal a man from demons? Who is this who can raise the dead? He is Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God who is full of grace and compassion for sinners like us. Now, those of you who know Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord, when is the last time you were amazed by Jesus? Or are we just so comfortable that we haven't been amazed in a very long time? Those of you who do not know Jesus, see him here. Bringing an upright religious man to see that his status, his personal morality, his goodness, his religious performance, none of those things can make him okay. None of those things can fix his life. None of those things can make him right with God. Oh, and see, too, that you cannot be made right with God by changing your behavior. I'm always amazed at how when I'm having conversations with people and they find out what I do for a living. Oh, man, I, I know I should get back to church, but i got to get rid of some stuff in my life first. And my response is, no, you don't. People in my church do those things. They just hide it. Come on. <laughs> oh, I said that part out loud, didn't I? Sorry. See, stop trying to clean up your act. Stop trying to be good and then come to God. You can't manipulate someone that's powerful with your behavior. You can only submit and say, I cannot do this without you. And he says, I know, get up. 
See, we are the little girl in this text. We're not Jairus. We're not the woman. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And Jesus Christ comes to us and he says, get up. Maybe you are the woman in this text. I believe all that, but I just, I'm so bad. I'm so broken. I just can't do it. Maybe you are the woman in this text. All you got to do is just, just grab the hem of Jesus' garment. Just, I don't know if you're real. I don't know if this gospel thing, I don't know about this whole deity stuff, but Jesus, can't, if you can help me, then I, I believe you can help me. Will you help me? That's enough for God to work with. He can do that. Forget it. Everything you think you know about religion or Christianity. If this man Jairus was here, here's what he would tell you. Forget all that stuff. I was the expert. Didn't work. And simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a resurrected Lord. And you'll see amazing things. He will accept you. He will forgive you. He will make you part of his family. Call you daughter, son. Don't you want that? You can have that. That's biblical Christianity. That is the gospel. And that what, that's what is available to you through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, Lord, we come before you. And we admit, Lord, that those of us who are, have been around a while, who sing the songs, who are very familiar, Lord, we, we so often forget your kindness. We so often forget that you are good and like to do good and we end up thinking that it's our behavior, our religiosity, our goodness, our our decency, whatever we call it that makes you somehow like us a little bit more than other people. Lord, would you forgive us for thinking so poorly of you? Instead, Lord, would you help us to see how beautifully gracious you are to sinners? That you go after us You make us uncomfortable on purpose to drive us to you alone for comfort instead of all the things we put comfort in. Lord, would you deepen our faith? Would you take those of us in the room who are gyrus, who know all the stuff, who do all the practices, who are faithful in attendance, but actually far from you, and would you draw us near by Jesus Christ? And Lord, we pray for the people in the room who are the little girl who are dead in their trespasses and sins. We pray, Lord, that you would come and that you would even at this moment call them from death to life. Maybe that's you right now. Maybe all of a sudden, like, I see it. I never got it before that Jesus Christ actually died for my sins and that he rose from the grave, that he can heal me. If that's you, just say that. Just confess faith in Jesus Christ as a resurrected Lord. And then come talk to the person who brought you here. Come talk to me or John Mark. Father God, build your gospel further and further into our hearts. Let us see more and more of Jesus and his gracious kindness and power. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.